you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to the book of Hosea, chapter 4. Like Habakkuk, it's one of those short books near the end of the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 4, and I will be reading the entire chapter. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing, and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beast of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase. Because they have ceased obeying the Lord. Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. My people ask counsel for them, from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray. And they have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills. Under oaks, poplars, and terebinths, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters commit harlotry, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots, and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not come up to Gilgal, nor go to Beth-Avon, nor swear an oath, saying, As the Lord lives. For Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like a lamb in open country. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we consider now your words that have been recorded,
We ask for the illumination of our hearts and our minds by the Spirit of Truth. I ask that you would forgive all of my sins and purify these unclean lips of mine and use them for your glory. We ask this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. At this particular point in history, the minor prophets of the Old Testament tend to be some of the most ignored and least understood books of the Bible. Many pastors are very hesitant to preach from these books. I'm very pleased that we do not have a pastor who hesitates to preach from, from the Old Testament minor prophets. But for most of us, the prophets are probably our weakest area of Bible knowledge. When we in the 21st century hear about a prophet, we tend to think of somebody like a psychic or a fortune teller. But the prophets of the Lord were something altogether different. So I would like to begin this morning by talking about who and what the prophets of the Lord were. The primary term for prophet in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word Navi, which means a called one. A prophet was a man who was called by God to do his bidding. Other titles assigned to the prophets in the Old Testament included seer, observer, man of God, watchman, and messenger of the Lord. This wide variety of titles tells us that the prophets had a wide range of roles in a number of different times in different places to different people. We know that under Moses' leadership, God brought the people out of Israel out of Egypt and made them into a nation by giving them his law at Mount Sinai. And after Joshua took the people across the Jordan River into the Promised Land, they lived as a loose confederacy of 12 tribes. Then, when the people decided that they wanted to have a king, Israel existed as a united kingdom for about 120 years under the reigns of King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. Then early in the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, there was a civil war. And the kingdom was divided into a northern kingdom uh, called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. The capital of the northern kingdom of Israel was the city of Samaria, and the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah was Jerusalem. Israel persisted as a separate kingdom for about 200 years until they were carried away into captivity by the Assyrians. Judah persisted as a nation for over 300 years until they were taken away as captives by the Babylonian Empire. Now, prior to the times of the kings in Israel and Judah, there were relatively few prophets. And during that time, the prophets functioned as leaders and consultants to the people. However, during the kingdom period of, of Judah and Israel, there was a surge of prophetic activity. These prophets did not function so much as consultants or leaders, but they played the role of keeping the monarchy in check. The Lord called prophets to make sure that the kingdoms were being ruled according to his law. And after the fall of Israel and Judah, 
during the time of the Babylonian exile and then the return to the land, the prophets were again relatively few in number. Our, our understanding of the Lord's prophets during the kingdom period of Israel and Judah has been greatly enhanced by archaeological discoveries that have taken place just in the last century. In the ancient Near East, the political situation was quite different than it is today. There were no really large nations such as the United States or Russia or China. There were only very small kingdoms, relatively speaking. Sometimes a king would simply be the ruler of a single walled city, and that would be his entire kingdom. And of course, there were other kings who were uh, the monarch over a much larger empire. From time to time, because of wars and alliances, one kingdom would become a servant nation to another kingdom. And in a situation like that, the servant kingdom would be called a vassal, and the master kingdom was, was referred to as the suzerain. And there were treaties that were drawn up that would define the relationship between the suzerain and the vassal, and what their responsibilities to each other would be. Now, during the period of the United Kingdom, the, the Israel functioned as a suzerain to several of its neighboring nations. And this was because of, of, of the way King David had expanded his empire. But during the period of the divided kingdoms, Judah at different times was a vassal to Assyria, Egypt, and Babylon. In many ways, the relationship between the Lord and his people parallels that of the suzerain-vassal relationship. In Genesis 15, where the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham, the account mimics the ratification ceremony for a new relationship between a suzerain and a vassal. When the Lord took the children of Israel out of Egypt, he made them into a, a nation by giving them his law. And when he did that, the law was de delivered in a format that's very similar to that of a suzerain vassal treaty. When a vassal would violate the law imposed on him by the suzerain, the suzerain would send an ambassador or a prosecutor to state his case against the vassal nation and bring them back into line with the suzerain's law. There's a very well-known passage in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah receives his commission as a prophet. In Isaiah chapter 6, the first eight verses read as follows. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Now, while this account is on a much much more grandiose scale than the throne room of any human king, it bears a striking resemblance to the court of a suzerain. When a vassal had rebelled against the law of the suzerain, the suzerain would assemble his court and ask his ministers who would be willing to go to the vassal and represent the suzerain. Now, as I said earlier, the prophets of the Lord were not psychics or fortune tellers. While a prophet at times would tell the people what the Lord planned to do in the future, he was, the prophet was primarily called by the Lord to speak for the Lord. So in one sense, a prophet was a preacher. But unlike a modern preacher who, if he's faithful, will preach the word of God from the scriptures, a prophet would preach the word of the Lord as it was directly given to him by the Lord. In another sense, a prophet was an ambassador in that he represented the greater king to the people. And in still another sense, the prophet was a was a covenant prosecutor who would bring a legal case against the people when they had violated God's covenant law. And that's why here in Hosea chapter 4, um, Hosea proclaims to Israel, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Now, the Hebrew word that we translate here as charge is the word reeve. And a reeve is a technical legal term. It could also be translated as lawsuit. So this uh, verse could read, Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a lawsuit against the inhabitants of the land. Some of your Bibles might say the Lord brings a case against the inhabitants of the land. We can think of the reeve kind of as a criminal charge and a civil suit rolled into one. We often fail to think of our relationship with the Lord as a legal relationship. We know that when a man and a woman enter into a covenant relationship of marriage, that is a very close, intimate, and personal relationship. But it's also a legally binding relationship. And if the legal terms of that relationship are violated, there are consequences to be paid both before the civil government and before the church. In a similar way, while our covenant relationship with the Lord can be a very close, intimate, and personal relationship, it is also a legal relationship. In the PCA, we have codified in our Constitution what we believe to be the multiple levels of church discipline that are identified in the Scriptures. The purpose of of church discipline is to maintain the glory of God and the purity of His church and the keeping and reclaiming of sinners. It is the responsibility of the church's elders to teach the people their responsibilities to God and to one another. 
And it's the responsibility of all Christian brothers and sisters to encourage each other towards love and good works. And when one of us comes into a scandalous violation of God's law, it's the responsibility of the elders to bring that person under the formal discipline of the church. Prophets in the Bible were sent as messengers from the Lord, as his ministers, his ambassadors, and when necessary, as his covenant prosecutors, to proclaim the Lord's formal discipline upon the people. Now bringing this information to the passage that we've read from Hosea 4, we need to ask, well, who was Hosea and into what situation had the Lord called him? Well, like a number of prophets, Hosea was called to warn the northern kingdom of Israel about God's coming judgment. On, and Hosea ministered in the early to middle part of the 8th century BC during the economically prosperous reign of King Jeroboam II. Now we're not told exactly where Hosea was from. We're only told that he was the son of a man named Bahari. However, it's reasonable to conclude that Hosea was a citizen from the northern kingdom. The language of the book of Hosea is in a dialect uh, that, that's specific to the northern kingdom. Hosea, in Hosea chapter 7, verse 5, he explicitly refers to the king in Samaria as our king. And you may remember Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. Now, while Hosea's preaching ministry was primarily to the northern kingdom of Israel, the book of Hosea, as we have it written down, was for the benefit of the people of the southern kingdom of Judah. There are a number of references in the book of Hosea to the nation of Judah. And in the beginning of the book, in Hosea 1.1, the prophet introduces his book by writing, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. It's fairly clear that the preaching of Hosea was primarily to the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. But this book was recorded for the benefit of the people in the, in the southern kingdom. And we know that because when he lists the, king, the kings of Judah, he lists, uh, the last one that he lists is King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah did not become the, the king of Judah until 715 B, B.C., which was seven years after the fall of the northern kingdom. So we must conclude that the book of Hosea was written after the fall of the northern kingdom. Now you may ask, why in the world are you telling us all this history? Well, like I said before, God has a legal relationship with his covenant people, both as individuals and as a covenant community. The law of God's covenant had been delivered to Israel through Moses. 
And when the covenant people of Israel violated God's law, Hosea was sent as a covenant prosecutor to the people of Israel. Historical precedent is a very important dimension of law. And God's judgment against Israel was a historical precedent of how God implemented his law and the punishment he meted out when the law was violated. This precedent, as it's recorded in the book of Hosea, served as a warning to the people of Judah not to behave as the people of Israel had behaved or they would suffer a similar fate. The Lord actually asked Hosea to endure a great deal of personal heartache in order to illustrate the relationship between the Lord and the people of Israel. In chapter 1, verse 2, we read, The Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. The Lord asked Hosea to marry a woman who he knew would not be faithful to him. And Hosea and his wife, Gomer, had three children, though they were not necessarily uh, Hosea's biological children. And the Lord gives them very unusual and symbolic names. The first child was named Jezreel, which means the Lord sows or the Lord scatters, similar to the way an ancient farmer would fling seeds out of his hand. The son, this son's name was symbolic of the fact that the Lord was about to fling the people of Israel out of his hand. The second child born to Hosea and Gomer was a daughter named Lo-Ruhamah, which means no mercy, not pity, or not loved. And this indicated that God was going to stop loving the people of Israel. The third child was another son who the Lord named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. The Lord was saying to Israel, you are not my people and I will not be your God. And this is in stark contrast to the covenant promises that were made in Exodus chapter 6 verse 7, where the Lord said to the children of Israel, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I'm the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. But Loami's name symbolized the fact that God was rejecting Israel and terminating their covenant relationship. In chapter 2 of the book of Hosea, we have a somewhat frightening description of a divine divorce of the Lord from Israel. The Lord says of Israel, For she is not my wife, nor am I her husband, and I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. The way that God implemented this punishment in history was that in the year 722 B.C., Israel was conquered and the people were taken away as captives to the, by the Assyrian Empire. The people of the Lord were scattered away from the Lord. They were scattered away from the promised land and shown no mercy. The people of Israel were no longer the people of the Lord. Now, why had the Lord given such a harsh punishment to Israel? 
To answer that question, we could go back and look at the history that's given to us in the King, the books of the Kings and the Chronicles, and see how the people had gotten involved in idolatry and Baal worship and their brazenly sinful lifestyles. But I think the Lord puts it very succinctly in the lawsuit recorded for us in chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Hosea 4 is what we call a lawsuit oracle. And as I said earlier, it is a formal charge being brought against the people of Israel by the Lord through his covenant prosecutor, Hosea. And what is the charge that the Lord is bringing against the people of Israel? He says, there is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Let's look briefly at, at these charges. The word that we translate, first there, there is no truth or mercy. The word that we translate here as truth is the Hebrew word emet. It's a word that means not only what is right or what conforms to reality, but it also has the sense of fidelity or integrity to the truth. Some of your translations might say, there is no faithfulness. The word that we translate as mercy is a Hebrew word chesed. And chesed not only conveys a sense of human compassion, but also implies personal love in a covenant relationship. The Lord elaborates on what he means in this verse when he says, By swearing and lying, killing and stealing, and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. The other charge that the Lord brings is, There is no knowledge of God in the land. The Lord says in verse 6, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The Lord basically says, You are guilty of bad theology. You have forgotten who I am and what my law says. And as I said before, these words were first spoken to the people of Israel just a few years before that northern kingdom was destroyed. Now because the people of Israel were treated so brutally by the Assyrians, and they were treated brutally, they were, they were killed, they were plundered, many of them were violated and taken away from their homes, and they were enslaved in a foreign land. Because of this, we may think that God was a bit harsh with his people. Especially when we look at his declarations against the people here in Hosea's writing. For she is not my wife, nor am I her husband, and I will have not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. I will scatter the people. I have no mercy on the people. You are not my people, and I will not be your God. We
We may think that, that all of this is a very harsh way for the Lord to treat the people of Israel. But we need to remember God was under no obligation to even send these people a warning. He had given them his law, and whether their disobedience was out of ignorance or open defiance, they were without excuse. It was very gracious of the Lord to warn his people because it gave them the opportunity to repent. There are multiple examples of God's threatening to destroy the people and then relenting when the people repented. So it was very gracious of the Lord to send Hosea as his covenant prosecutor to, to bring this charge against the inhabitants of the land and to warn them. As I said, these words were first spoken to the people of Israel just a few years before the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed. However, after the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed, these words were put into writing for the benefit of the southern kingdom of Judah, more than a century before they were taken into captivity in the Babylonian Empire. And the warning for the people of Judah was clear. If you behave the way that the, north, the people of the northern kingdom behave, you are likely to suffer a similar punishment. And just like the people of Israel, the people of Judah did not heed their warning. Now, you may say, well, Craig, isn't this all it's just the Old Testament? You know, the, that was the Old Covenant. We're, we're a New Testament church. We live, live in, under the New Covenant. Well, if you do your homework, you will find that there are more than 70 references to the book of Hosea in the New Testament. And I think that if for no other reason, we should take the book of Hosea as a warning, not only to Israel and to Judah, but also to those of us who live under the new covenant. As Americans, we live in a nation that was founded on a loyalty to the Christian God. In the year 1620, the pilgrims in the Mayflower Compact declared that they came to the new world to plant a colony in North America for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Earlier this month, my wife and I had the privilege of, of becoming registered voters here in the state of Kentucky. And one of the things you'll find if you study Kentucky government is that the authors of our Constitution and had such a high regard of the role of God in government that they stated in the preamble of the Constitution, we the people of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, grateful to Almighty God for the civil, political, and religious liberties we enjoy and invoking the continuance of these blessings, do ordain and establish this Constitution. Most people don't know this, but in the year 1782, the Continental Congress of the United States actually authorized and recommended an English translation of the Bible to all the inhabitants of the United States. The rationale that was given was that in every well-regulated government in Christendom, the sacred books of the Old and New Testament, commonly called the Holy Bible, are printed and published under the authority of the sovereign powers in order to prevent the 
alarming injuries the Christian faith might suffer from the spurious and erroneous additions of divine revelation. Now, if that's not overtly Christian, I don't know what is. We live in a nation that was founded on a loyalty to the Christian God. But the law of God is no longer welcome in our courts or our legislatures. In our government schools, the Bible can no longer be read, and teachers and students are forbidden to pray to the Lord. And just a few weeks ago, we saw the Indiana state government bow to the pressure of a very vocal minority not to allow Christian businessmen and women to exercise their biblical convictions. When the nation of Israel was tolerant of the worship of Baal and Asherah and Molech, the Lord found it detestable. I did a fair amount of traveling when I was an Air Force contractor, and I can tell you that if you go to any major airport in this country, you will observe by looking at the people that we are now tolerant of the worship of a variety of gods. Millions of unborn children are murdered every year in this country with our government's blessing. We have state governments that legally permit euthanasia and many more that look the other way when it's practiced. Our own presbytery, the Ohio Valley Presbytery, had to address the question of whether or not a minister should be permitted to think that these kind of things are acceptable. And you can ask Ken Patrick about that because he was involved in the study committee that responded to that. But personally, I, I found it very disturbing that we even had to ask the question. What about us as individuals? Do we in our lives live with integrity? Do we ever swear inappropriately? Do we ever lie to our fellow members of the covenant community? Do we steal or commit adultery? Do we have absolute integrity in our use of the internet? I would be naive to think that none of those things happen in a, in a group this size. In our confession of faith, the, the, PCA, the PCA asserts that the moral law of God forever binds all persons to obedience. And we also assert that Christ in the gospel does not in any way dissolve, but strengthens this obligation. In our personal lives, in our families, in our churches, and in our nation, could these words apply to us? The Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. Sadly, I think the answer is yes. These words could apply to us. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, said that the, the basis of this lawsuit oracle are the most weighty matters of God's law. Now, there's a lot more about God's law that I would like to be able to say and, and how his law applies to us and how he's worked with his people in history, but we simply uh, 
uh, aren't allowed by the time that we have this morning. But God was gracious to give this warning to the people of Israel. He was gracious to preserve this warning for the people of Judah. And God has been very gracious to preserve Hosea's warning in writing for us. If we as individuals, as families, as churches, and as a nation don't turn from the path that we are on, we may suffer a fate similar to that of Israel and Judah. Well, so what? What can we do about it? What should we do in light of this warning that God has preserved for us? Well, the first thing we need to do is repent. And repentance not only involves saying that we're sorry and feeling sorry for our sin, but a genuine turning from our sinful behavior and striving to live with each other in obedience to God. True repentance involves not only turning from what we already know is wrong, but it also involves searching the Word of God to find out for ourselves what His law says is right and wrong. Secondly, we need to be in prayer for our leaders, that they would make decisions according to the will of God. Here in Kentucky, we will be electing a governor this year. And Christians need to be in prayer, and we need to be involved in the promotion of righteousness in our government. Children, you need to pray for your parents. Husbands need to pray for their wives. Wives need to pray for their husbands. And together as families, we need to pray for our church, and especially for our pastor. As individuals, as families, and in churches, we need to be in prayer for our presbytery, our general assembly, and for our civil governments. A few years ago, at our parent church, the Church of the Covenant, we held a conference on the law of God. And one of the speakers was Dr. Mark Lawson, who's well known to our congregation, and he's filled the pulpit here at Trinity several times. Mark said something in that conference that has always stuck with me. He said, in the question and answer session, Mark was asked the question, well, what should we do in light of our current circumstances? And the answer that Mark gave was, Declare the word of the Lord. 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 And then declare the word of the Lord some more. Through Hosea, the Lord said, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. We need to declare the word of God to ourselves, to our churches, and to our nation. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. The people of Israel were warned and they did not heed their warning. The people of Judah were warned and they did not heed the warning. We have been warned. And the question before us is, how will we respond? Let's pray. 
Our great God and loving Heavenly Father, you have been immeasurably gracious to us in giving us your word, but we, your people, have been unfaithful to you and to your law. We thank you and praise you that your Son, Jesus Christ, is our King and our Savior to give us repentance and forgiveness of sins. We pray that through him, you would enable us as individuals, as families, as churches, and as a nation to live in a way that is pleasing to you, according to your law. May there be truth and mercy and knowledge of God among us. O Lord, you have spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to the setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty you have shown forth. You summon the heavens above and the earth to judge your people. The heavens declare your righteousness, for you, O Lord, are the judge. We give thanks to you for all your mercies of every kind. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night do not cease. We thank you for the food, the clothing, and the shelter that you graciously provide for us. We thank you for our families, our friends, our church, and our community, and our nation, where we are still free to gather and worship you without fear this day. We thank you for the gift of your word, that we may know you, and your law, and your great mercy which you have shown in your history with your people. We thank you most of all for the great salvation you have provided to us in the person and the work of your Son, our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for, for the sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We humbly pray that you would continue these blessings to your servants, not because we deserve it, for indeed we do not deserve it, but for the glory of your great name. Father, your word teaches us, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God, of the God of Jacob, send you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. And so we come to you now with our petitions and prayers of intercession. We pray for our governments at the federal, state, and local level. Father, in our news, we see almost daily so much corruption in our government. Our founding fathers sought the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the making of just laws. But today we see a government that seeks to shut you out of the public square and laws and decrees are made only to secure power. We pray that you would cause our leaders to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with you, our God. But if they will not, we pray that you would replace them with men who will. Father, we pray that you would remove from our nation the scourge of abortion and all other unjust laws. Father, we pray for the salvation of all mankind. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon the nations and hasten that, that day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We pray for the peace, purity, and extension of your church throughout the world. May your word be faithfully preached. May your discipline be maintained. And may your people make diligent use of your means of grace. 
We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We pray that you would bring them relief from their suffering, that they might lead tranquil and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. We pray for the work of missions around the world, and especially the work of MTW. We pray that you would keep our missionaries safe, and that you would make them bold to preach your gospel and establish your church. We pray for our sister churches in the Ohio Valley Presbytery, and in all the Presbyterian Church in America. We pray for our ministers, that you would keep them faithful to you, and your word, and your calling. We pray that you would cause the people of our churches to love and support their ministers. We pray in particular for your saints here at Trinity Presbyterian Church. We pray that you would give us a hunger for your word and sanctify us by it. We pray that you would cause us to make diligent use of your means of grace. We pray that we might follow our Savior's command to love one another. And may all men recognize your people by the love we have for each other. We pray that you would help us to be good stewards of this property that you have graciously given us. We pray that you would grant wisdom and strength and integrity to our session members in leading your people and to our trustees in the management of this property. We pray that you would raise up more elders and deacons to help care for your people. We pray that you would sustain us, that we might not grow weary in doing what is good. We pray for our pastor Chuck Hickey and his wife Lori as they are away from us this week. We pray that you would keep them safe and return them to us rested and refreshed. Finally, Father, we pray for the afflicted, for those who are sick, that they might be healed, for those who mourn, that they might be comforted, for those who are weary and heavy laden, that they might find rest, for those who are discouraged or depressed, that they might find the joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, for those who are anxious, that they might know the peace that passes understanding. We pray all of these things knowing that apart from you, we can do nothing, and in the confidence that you are able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And now we pray as he taught us, praying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.